0: When I was a young minister, freshly graduated and ordained, my first ministry in the 1960s, after seven years in the slums of Newmarket, was in a small country church in the small country town of Ararat, gateway to the Wimmera, in Western Victoria. There I learnt the difficult art faced by all city-bred ministers, of becoming a country parson. At the end of my seven years in the slums of Newmarket, my wife, Beverly, and young daughter, Jenny, and I were packed to leave for the United States of America, where I was to pursue some postgraduate studies, working toward my doctorate. Our furniture, luggage, and all of our possessions were on board the SS Arcadia, which was steaming across the Pacific to San Francisco. We were not. The assassination of President John F. Kennedy had caused consternation in the United States consulate in Melbourne. It had gone into full terrorist alert and many of us who were waiting on the final processing of our visas for entry into the United States were caught up in the whirlwind that followed. As a result, we were without visas and unable to travel. For the next couple of weeks, we haunted the consulate, trying to get our papers stamped. In fact, even trying to get in through the locked doors and armed security guards. But our papers had been lost somewhere in the mad rush that had followed the tragic event of the President's assassination. In the meantime, all of our money had been transferred to the United States to wait for our arrival in Indianapolis. Beverly and baby Jenny and I possessed nothing other than what we stood up in. All of our possessions, our belongings, and our money was either already in the United States or else crossing the Pacific on the way. I needed income immediately to look after my family, just to survive. The Churches of Christ denominational officials in Melbourne, knowing of our predicament, wanted us to get some income immediately, I received a letter from them asking me to take a temporary appointment until the visas were approved in a small country church of Ararat. The denominational officials realised that I might only be there a few weeks or perhaps a few months at most. But if I could give them a little time, I could perhaps settle down what had been a most explosive situation. In fact, the church had been a sore in the side of the denomination for many years. They needed someone fresh from outside, someone who would not be bossed around by some of the local men who made it so difficult for the previous pastors, all of whom had left following disputes and difficulties. And as for us, well, we're in no position to bargain. And so I accepted the proposition. I headed up country with my wife and baby to commence what we hoped would be a brief interim ministry of a few weeks or perhaps a couple of months as a country parson. Little did I know what was to lay ahead of us in that church over the next few weeks. I received, just before I left that week, a long letter from the conference executive in Melbourne explaining that this church had a reputation for internal disputes and division. Many members had left over previous years, as several of the ministers, broken in spirit, left themselves. I was warned about several people who would either try to bribe me or force me onto their way of thinking. I was encouraged to be my own person. They also indicated that they had every confidence in what I would do following my successful seven years in the Newmarket churches, that they believed I was the right man for the job and that if things turned out for the worst, it would be no mark against me. Rather, it was an indication that this church was just impossible. I spoke by phone to the church secretary, who sounded a gem of a man. In fact, he was. He very quickly became our closest friend and supporter, a friendship that has lasted down all the years. I explained to him that I had a commission to go to their church and commence ministry that coming weekend. But we had no furniture, no bedding, no blankets, no clothing, no crockery no cutlery, no luggage, no books. In fact, all my wife and I and our baby daughter had was the clothes that we were standing up in and our toothbrush. If he could round up some things for the empty manse to make us a little more comfortable, I would deeply appreciated it. Perhaps they didn't be really good quality because we would only need them for a few weeks and then eventually we'd be back off to the United States and catch up with our baggage and our luggage and our personal bags which were on the cabin in our cabin on board that boat ron replied that he would get what he could from the members of the church he was sure that he could get a mattress and perhaps a bed if not the mattress would be on the floor when we arrived he knew where there was a lounge suite and he was sure he could rustle up some kitchen utensils and crockery from the small number of members in that small country church It was a stinking hot January day when we arrived. Only those who have lived in the Wimmera, the Mallee or the Outback, understands the dry Australian heat when the north winds blow. It was about 105 degrees Fahrenheit when we arrived. I stood outside the manse that was to be our home. I felt terrible for my wife. What a depressing, deplorable sight into which to bring a young wife and a brand-new baby. The manse was surrounded by the most rusty old iron fence you can imagine. The iron roof of the house was to match. It had been painted a couple of decades earlier in battleship grey, which was peeling and weather-stained. There was a dirt drive with a gate hanging from its hinges. The rooms were empty, with threadbare lino covering the floor, with holes in it everywhere. The church secretary, Ron, had been true to his word. There was a double bed mattress and some blankets in the front room. In the kitchen there was a table and some chairs which someone had not wanted and a pile of mismatched crockery. The stove had burnt out and it looked like it would be difficult to coax it into life. In the lounge room there was a couch and two chairs that Ron said had been available. They looked like they had been in someone's back shed for a while and perhaps had given comfort and rest to a few chooks. There was a lounge room wood heater in the centre of the wall, but that looked also burnt out and useless. Next to the manse on one side was a large iron shed that belonged to the plumber next door. The shed, its roof and fence, were in matching, rusting, corrugated iron. On the other side of the manse was a vacant paddock with waist-high dry grass, and then on the other side of the paddock was the church. It was also painted with battleship grey, which was quite appropriate considering the wars that that church had been through. One of the main front windows was broken. There were cobwebs in all the corners. The paint was peeling badly from the battleship grey doors. Surrounding the front of the church and up the side was another rusty corrugated iron fence. It was the most depressing, decrepit looking lot of church buildings for the worship of God and the housing of the minister that I had seen anywhere in this nation. We stood outside. Our hearts sank in despair. Well, there was one good thing about it. We'd only have to stay a couple of weeks and then we'd be off to America when our visas would be finally approved. Well, it didn't take long to unload the borrowed car from my family and put the few possessions that we'd acquired from our parents and family members into the manse. I immediately drove up the shops while my wife got a meal ready. I went up to the heart of that country town and found the hardware store. I asked the man behind the counter what I could do with a rusty corrugated iron. He indicated that it was best to brush it down with a wire brush and apply a coat or two of zinc chromate. I bought two wire brushes, two four-gallon cans of zinc chromate. I asked him how to uh, treat the peeling paint on the wooden church doors. He suggested I wire brush them, undercoat them, and give them a couple of coats of good quality paint. So I bought some more undercoat and I brought a can of brilliant pillarbox red topcoat. I'd already made up my mind that by the time the church people arrived on the following Sunday morning, they'd realised that a new minister had come to town. As soon as we had had tea that night, my wife and I got to work and we were visited by Ron Norma, the church secretary and his wife that first night and they joined us. They were amazed. They'd never seen a minister on in the first day of shifting in, starting to paint the church. We rubbed down the front fes- fence in the long twilight summer evening. It was late that night when the worst of the rust had been rubbed down and I put a coat of zinc chromate right along the front fence of the manse. <laughs> zinc chromate. The man in the hardware shop had not told me that zinc chromate was bright Yellow. It looked like a massive yolk from an egg. Even in the light of the full moon, that brilliant yellow fin stood out. The next day, I rubbed down the doors of the church. I undercoated them and gave them two coats of pillar box red. It now looked like an egg with tomato sauce all over it. It was Saturday. I knew the following morning when people came to church, they would see the difference. My wife and I came out of the manse that Sunday morning and walked past the brilliant yellow fence towards the brilliant pillar box red doors of the church. Several handfuls of people were standing around looking at the new painting, talking. They were absolutely goggle-eyed. What was happening? Who had arrived at the church? Who gave authority for this? Some of the men standing around said, is this your work? Did you give authority for this? Who's paying for this? And a few people started to say, who cared enough? to paint their fence and the church doors. It had been 30 years since either had seen a coat of paint. Who was this new man who put a coat of paint on on his first day in the place? It was the first of a series of announcements that were going to take place that morning that I was to make. I led to the church service. I introduced myself as I went, told them I didn't want to be there. It wasn't my plan to be there. I wasn't invited there. I'd been sent there. So I was going to do the best I could. I then announced there'd be a new youth club which would commence on Friday night, meeting in our home. There'd be a new boys' club I would commence on Tuesday night, meeting in the church hall. There'd be a girls' club on Wednesday night. There'd be a series of adult Bible studies, which I would take on Wednesday night. Furthermore, a Sunday school would commence the following Sunday morning at 9.30, and a family picnic would be held on the Australia Day public holiday the following Monday at Lake Fiennes near stall. I made all of these announcements, and as I made each one, heads turned, people were chattering. I was thinking to myself, however, I had only one week to recruit, train, and deploy teachers for the Sunday school. I had two days to get leaders for the boys' club. I only had five days to get leaders for the youth club, to get materials, equipment, to organise facilities. But I was determined to show that country church what would happen when a qualified, ordained minister took charge. There was no more attentive congregation in the nation that morning. A stranger had taken the pulpit. He had painted their fence yellow and the church doors bright red. Then came the announcement of all these new activities, directions and programs for children, youth and adults. Everything was go, go. But who gave authority? Where was the money coming from? Who had sent this new minister? The church was a gog the factions didn't know which group he was supporting. Indeed, it seemed as if he was going on with the job right over the heads of all of the factions. As people came out of church that hot summer morning, people were shaking their heads in disbelief and talking with each other, including those people who had never talked with each other. Instead of fighting among themselves, they had been the subject of a surprise attack. A sort of takeover from the pulpit. They didn't know yet whether it was friend or foe. One wealthy man tried to push money into the top pocket of my suit coat to pay for the paint. I gave it back to him and told him I didn't require anything from him. One thing was certain. The people said something had to be done about that yellow fence. And within ten minutes several men volunteered to come to work each night, and they would undercoat and top coat it so long as there's any other colour except yellow. Something something respectable, like like battleship grey. Not on your life, I said. Let's brighten this church up. They didn't know it, and neither did I. But very soon that small, difficult church would be transformed. And you know, in the next couple of years, we were going to paint the whole town red. And so I headed back to the country manse at number 90 High Street, opposite the railway station, having learned another lesson in the difficult art of becoming a country (laughs) parson.